It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, December 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a federal judge rules a Mississippi eviction law unconstitutional. Then, a look at efforts to bring college classes to parchment inmates despite the pandemic. And writer Suzanne Cope tells us about her new book, which chronicles the role of a Macomb restaurant in the civil rights movement. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. federal judge found last week that a Mississippi law permitting broad and aggressive action by landlords against non-paying tenants is unconstitutional. The plaintiff in the relevant case is a woman named Samantha Connor. Connor is a mother of two who was evicted without notice from her Columbus apartment in 2019. Jordan Bowling Hughes is an attorney at the University of Mississippi's Low Income Housing Center. She speaks with MPB's Desiree Frazier. The statutes that we challenged in Ms. Connor's case gave the landlord the right first, you know, immediately at the eviction hearing to ask for a warrant for removal. And that is the mechanism that, you know, once that's served by a constable, actually removes the tenant from the property. And this can be granted if the tenant owes just one month's rent or is just one day behind in their rent. So the way that the statute was was written, it said that that warrant shall issue immediately upon request of the landlord. And then the language of the statute went on to say that if the tenant hadn't left, and I'm paraphrasing it, but if the tenant hadn't left and hadn't removed their property when that warrant was executed, then the landlord could dispose of that property however they saw fit. And so in Ms. Connor's case, what happened was she wasn't aware that that warrant for removal had been requested or issued by the court. She was actually trying to pay what she owed and stay, which the law allows that. And so she she didn't know it was going to happen. 
the property manager, Kevin Castile, and the constable in that case showed up at her door very early in the morning. She was still in bed, knocked on her door, and demanded that she leave immediately. And then the property manager refused to let her pack up anything. I think they let her take, you know, the clothes she had on. The constable let her get some medications. But anything else, her laptop she used for work, her kids, you know, Xbox, toys, pictures, diplomas, everything else. He said that, no, you can't take that. It's mine. And she had to leave without any of her belongings because he felt like the law allowed him to do that. There is nothing in the law that requires that the landlord let the tenant know that they need to get out. So there are notice requirements, but this process, once you get to the justice court stage, no, there's no, you know, you you get summons to court, you go to court. Usually in justice court, the judge will ask a tenant, do you owe? And once the tenant says yes, the judge says, okay, work it out with your landlord, judgment for the landlord in the amount of whatever. And so the tenant leaves court feeling like, okay, I'm going to pay this and stay, you know, work it out. They don't realize that at that moment, the landlord can get that warrant for removal and get them out. Is this common in the state? Yes, very common. We have several clients that this has happened to. What is the impact on the client? They lose everything that they have. And, you know, it's really hard to start over. And so, you know, not only do you, especially for someone in Ms. Connor's position who was trying to pay what she owed and stayed, stay in her house, you know, she's lost it all. You're homeless. You have to find somewhere to sleep, you know, basic necessities so that she can just exist. But then how do you keep a job when you don't have a roof over your head, you know, or clothes to go to work in the next day? And so this impacts every part of your life once this happens to you. And that's what it did to her. She was homeless for a long time. She was unemployed for a long time. And that's what we've seen over and over again. It, it, it stops your life member once you lose everything and you have to start over. So basically, any tenant is relying on the goodwill of the landlord to work with them on paying what they owe? Yes, or just giving them time to move out. You know, sometimes tenants might not be able to pay. And in that situation, the landlord, you know, it is their property. And what we see a lot of, well, not a lot of the time, but some of the time, you know, we we usually get pretty bad cases, situations where um, bad things have happened to people. But some landlords will let the tenant know, okay, I'm going to get the warrant on this day. You need to be out. And so the tenant knows that they need to move. But the law doesn't require the landlord to do that. So it's their goodwill, like you said. And it's relying on a landlord who wants to work with that tenant. As far as the letter of the law as it existed, once that warrant was issued, the landlord didn't have to do anything else except for if they wanted to, they could let them come back in and get their stuff or they could put it on the curb and let the tenant pick it up. But we've seen lots of cases where the landlord said, nope, get out. And if you come back, I'm going to arrest you for trespass. So there was no way for our clients to get their property back. And what do the landlords do with the property? Do you know? 
I know in Ms. Connor's case <clears throat> and in several of our other cases, they have sold it. Um, they have donated it and they've thrown it away. That's what Kevin Castile did in Ms. Connor's case. He threw everything out. He, he did. Well, he sold what he could and then he donated other stuff and then threw out the stuff that he didn't think had any value. And that, <laughs> that stuff that they're referring to in that case would be her children's childhood photos and her diplomas and, you know, things that don't mean anything to anybody except for the person who owns them. So that's not trash, but he treated it like it was trash. So is there any indication the legislature wants to take up this issue? Yes, we have um, on good authority that the legislature or some of the legislatures are wanting to fix this because they understand that it's a problem, it's unfair, and unjust, <laughs> unconstitutional. There's a lot of uns there. And so they want to fix it and to to make our law better, which is their job. So I'm, I'm proud of them. Jordan Bowling-Hughes is research counsel at the University of Mississippi's Low Income Housing Center. Coming up, how a college in the state stayed connected with incarcerated students despite the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi Delta Community College is the recipient of this year's Humanities Educator Award from the State Humanities Council. The college is being recognized for its efforts to deliver educational opportunities to inmates at Parchment Prison in spite of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ben Cloyd is MDCC's Vice President of Effectiveness and Enrollment. We had really uh, kind of just got involved with getting a program launched. Uh, there's been really a wave in the last, I would say, two to three years of interest. A few community colleges around the state have been working with you know, various correctional facilities. But Mississippi Delta Community College, where I'm at, has, was really kind of getting up and running right at the same time the pandemic hit. So we really didn't have the program prior to the pandemic. But what we were able to do is sort of learn from you know, the remote and virtual aspects of what we had to do during the pandemic to go ahead and get started at Parchment. Uh, and so we launched our first three classes back uh, this past spring. Uh, we've had three more classes uh, this fall and are, you know, I'm not going to continue on that same schedule for this upcoming spring and for future semesters as well. What does the virtual classroom look like? Because obviously it's not individual computers and their cells. Absolutely. No. So what we, what we're able to do is, we have a technology called Swivel, which allows an instructor to be in their classroom and so they can have access to their you know, board to write on. They can have access to their computer, but actually the Swivel follows them around and streams from their classroom into uh, the classrooms at Parchman uh, or you know, remotely for other students in other settings as well. So it really is the perfect tool that enables us to keep instruction or kind of deliver instruction really anywhere. Uh, and so it was, it kind of came along at the perfect time. One of the, you know, I guess a bright spot out of all that we've been through in the last you know, couple of years. How many different courses are there? 
We do three a semester. Uh, in spring of 21, we did uh, beginning English, intermediate English, English Comp 1. This current semester wrapping up, we did an American history class, uh, psychology and public speaking. And this coming spring, I think we're doing art appreciation, sociology, and I, we're going to do another section of English Comp 1 to kind of help uh, new students that are coming into the program at this point. What kind of interest do you have from your students? Uh, it's overwhelming. Uh, the, the students at Parchman are fabulous. Uh, they're engaged. They do great work. Uh, we're actually reaching the point where there are more students that want to take the courses than we can accommodate at this point in time, which is a good problem to have, but one that also challenges us to think about how can we provide consistency and facilities to and instruction to, to help as many students as possible? It's interesting that the courses are in the humanities because maybe it's a generalization for me to say this, but I would think that people serving time in prison would be looking for employment when they get out and being prepared for that employment. Humanities doesn't necessarily offer that. That's a fair question, but I think it's also one that kind of speaks to the fact that currently the state of really uh, higher education in prison is very segmented and sort of siloed across different areas. And there hasn't really been a statewide effort or a cohesive statewide effort to really think about the implications of everything you just asked in that question, Karen, which is what does it mean to educate? What, are, what does advising look like for students that are incarcerated? What would be the best fit uh, for each individual student? And then what does reentry look like? You know, the goal ultimately is whether it's humanities or workforce or technical training that any student that comes out of uh, prison would be ready to seamlessly as possible integrate back into society and the workforce and, and, you know, with reduced recidivism rates and all those things. So I think one of the real challenges with that is that it's very difficult to, you know, do a lot of bureaucracy that goes with both the college side of things from an admissions and registration standpoint. And then you layer that on top of, you know, the correctional uh, facilities and their bureaucracies. That's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape to cut through to really be able to help students on an individual basis. And so it's a bit daunting. But to kind of come back around to the core of your question, I think humanity is a great starting point because many of these students will be incarcerated for many years to come. Some may not ever get out. Um, but the achievement of a degree and a credential is something that means a great deal, not only to themselves personally, but uh, these students talk about what it means to their families, to their sons and daughters or other family members to ha be able to say, hey, I'm going to school, too. You can do this, I think, is a remarkable achievement. Uh, and so the impact of the humanities is, is wonderful because it really prepares you for anything. It prepares you to, to think and to, to really be anything and dream anything you want to be. And so I, we think it's an extremely valuable way to invest our time and, and, and support these students. Can a student eventually earn a degree, an associate's degree? That is what we're dreaming towards. Absolutely. We've, we've had the first students that are starting to take multiple semesters. We're excited that this coming spring, we expect to have our first students become eligible for Phi Theta Kappa, which means they've started to get to about a quarter of the way to an Associate of Arts degree. We are intending to stick with this program, Mississippi Delta Community College, uh, as you know, for many, many years to come. And so we can deliver most of the requirements at this point in time to Parchman the question long term will be how do we figure out how to do things like science labs, for example, you know, science is a you know, part of the curriculum. So there are some things we're going to have to work out in the next few years. But, yes, our intention ultimately is to give students every opportunity to earn an associate of arts degree. And then, like you indicated earlier, if there are other programs or that are 
more technical or workforce that we could build it as well, we'd be thrilled and excited to add those as well. Tell me how the public speaking class works. Public speaking, uh, that's our instructor, Coach Fears. It's, it's funny, um, our Dean of Enrollment Management, Dean Gary was just up there doing applications and testing for upcoming semester. And while he was there, he actually got to see Coach Fears' his class. And uh, it it's really remarkable how the students are invested. He said it was one of the coolest things he'd ever seen, the quality of the work. And you sort of mentioned earlier some of the assumptions that people have about students that might you know be incarcerated. But really, he said it, it was incredibly moving and, and powerful to see the quality that was on display there with that class. And you said that it's these classes are wildly popular. That you're going to be they are. on a waiting list pretty soon. We're, we're reaching that. We're reaching that point. As a conversation we just had about a month ago was, what do we do now that we have more students that want to take these classes than we currently have capacity for? Yes, it's uh, it, it's something that we're we're working on at this point for sure. It has to be gratifying for all of you who have invested your time and expertise in this to to have students who are so engaged and invested in what they're doing. Karen, it's awesome. Uh, uh, the evaluations that come out each semester, they they consistently harp on the one big negative. These classes aren't long enough. <laughs> and, and the classes, of course, are two hours long. So yeah, that's not that's not the typical evaluation you'll get from a college student. But the students are thrilled. And and really one of the most moving things uh, we do. Uh, sort of a kickoff ceremony and a kind of a, a graduation wrap-up ceremony. So we get the chance to go uh, multiple times a year. You know, we've been, I think, uh, three or four times in a celebratory capacity this past year. We'll do the same again in this upcoming year. It, it, it's just awesome. You know, we've had some some legislators come out who are you know, really thrilled by the quality of work that's going on. It, it, it really just is, it's the right kind of work for the right kind of reasons. It's what community colleges are all about, uh, serving students in an open access way across the state. And I think Mississippi is better for it. Dr. Ben Cloyd is the Vice President for Effectiveness and Enrollment at Mississippi Delta Community College. Thanks so much, Dr. Cloyd. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate your time today. Coming up, a conversation with writer Suzanne Cope. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Writer Suzanne Cope's new book is called Power Hungry. It follows a pair of black women who used food to bring together key leaders within the Black Panther Party and the broader civil rights movement. One of those two women was Mississippian Aileen Quinn, who turned her Macomb restaurant into a rendezvous for revolutionaries. She would always feed anyone who was hungry. I was talking to her daughter, Jacqueline, talked about how she would send Jacqueline to so-and-so's house with a big plate of, of whatever it was, of gumbo or whatever she was cooking. So she definitely was feeding whoever needed food, whoever needed support in the community. As early as 1960, at least as my research has found, she welcomed Robert Moses into her cafe and um, and she would always feed him and other people, including um, Curtis Hayes Muhammad, would say that never spent a dollar, never spent a dime at Aline's at South of the Border. She would feed any activist, black or white, no questions asked. And that was very much what brought the ire of the local white supremacists, the KKKs. They were mad about that. They were so upset that she would allow white and black people to eat together, that she 
would um, support these activists in this kind of way, you know, in, in nutrition in in meeting space. But then also I heard stories and I read stories um, that she would host these secret meetings in the back of the restaurant. There's this one story where other local leaders uh, came in the back of a, of a delivery van and snuck in so that you know, no one would know that they were there. So she certainly was was hosting meetings as well and, and doing a lot of other things behind the scenes. Do you know how her activism began? What inspired her? You know, talking to um, Jacqueline Quinn, who was so generous with her time, and she still lives in Macomb, and she said that she just always had the sense of what was right and wrong. And she remembers that from a very early age. And Jacqueline, um, she was uh, nine in Freedom Summer, during Freedom Summer. And so she, you know, just said that was that was who she was. It was just part of what always drove her and always motivated her. She saw the inequities around her and she didn't want that for her children. And, um, and Jacqueline also said that she never you know, kept news from her children, never kept her activism from her children, always encouraged them to stand up for what was right and what they believed in. And, uh, and she really instilled that in her, in her children. Part of the title of your book is Their Fight to Feed a Movement. How did food play a part in reaching some of the goals? Well, it was so much about, of course, making sure that people were fed. One of the stories in the book was talking about um, what was happening up in the Delta early in the 1960s about how literally food was kept from people who were hungry by white supremacist leaders who were angry that they were organizing around voting rights. And so food was used as a weapon punitively, which is just awful. And then you have so many other people like Mama Quinn, you know, many others around the state who were doing the opposite for making sure people had sustenance, of course. But we all know what happens when people can sit around a dinner table. They, they talk, they share stories, they find common ground. And so also so much was about supporting people in that way and saying we can sit down together, such as the activists during Freedom Summer and beforehand. And saying we can we have so much in common. We can share our food ways. We can share our table, and we don't care who that angers. Um, there's other great uh, scholars who talk about how intimate it is to eat with one another. You know, bringing you know food to your lips, and how so many people at the time, um, so many racists at the time, saw eating together as this gateway to other more experiences. And so by flaunting that and saying, no, we are going to share a table. We're going to share food. I'm going to make food for you and invite you to my house was very much flaunting those ideas and saying, no, we believe in equity. And I think that food is such a powerful symbol of culture, of community, and uh, whether or not it was fully intentional to be using it metaphorically, it certainly was such a powerful tool. Did the FBI know of the meetings that were going on around food at the cafe? They definitely did. In the early 1960s, they were mostly just keeping an eye on people and letting them know that they were keeping an eye on them. Um, Studies shown that just knowing that you're being watched can um, make people afraid to do things that they think might cause ire of people in power. But then, you know, they eventually used that power to tell the law enforcement not to investigate bombings, to needlessly imprison people, to beat people without any sort of repercussions. So it eventually turned from just surveillance to, um, you know, active violence and other kinds of ways to stop people from organizing. I think that history may have passed Aileen Quinn by. 
do people in Macomb know who she was? Oh, certainly. They definitely know Mama Quinn in Macomb. But you're right. She's very much a footnote in history. This book is really saying, well, you know, let's tell the story why she was considered so important and such a leader, so dangerous to uh, the KKK. Suzanne Cope is the author of Power Hungry, Women of the Black Panther Party and Freedom Summer and their fight to feed a movement. Suzanne, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.